Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast discussing the strange, eclectic, macabre and esoteric, hosted by Rick Palmer. Vancouver Island is an entity of its own. Anyone who lives here or visits here can sense that it has a unique persona. The fog rolls in from the sea, and the island suddenly becomes shrouded in mystery, cloaked in a blanket of otherworldliness. The air we breathe feels charged, the nights have an aura of power, and we do not feel alone on the beach or in the woods. For thousands of years, those who lived on Vancouver Island accepted as fact that it was haunted, As settlers built cities and tried to cast aside their own age-old belief in the supernatural, the urban centres spawned countless new tales of hauntings and of the spirit world. That was the opening passage of a book called The Haunting of Vancouver Island, written by Shannon Sin, who is the guest for this episode. He has lived on the island for over 20 years, and in that time has formed a deep personal connection with the wildlife, landscape and people who live there. The book examines a wide range of supernatural tales, from First Nations legends, the early days of European settlement, and onward into more recent times. Shannon is an award-winning journalist and author, whose life story could be a book in itself. His connection to Vancouver Island gives a real depth to the stories he has featured in the book, and it makes it an excellent read. It was a real pleasure to have him on the podcast. Shannon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we're going to be talking about your book, The Haunting of Vancouver Island, which uh, I really enjoyed. So I think the best place to start is just just tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in the supernatural, um, and then what led you to, to write the book? Oh, wow. Uh, you start with the big questions, hey? Uh, <laughs> um, it, uh, I had some experiences, I guess, as a kid and when I was younger. And over time, I kind of had dismissed uh, what was happening. The, the main thing was this green sort of mist cloud that I would wake up and see sometimes. And I ruled it out in my own mind as a sleep hallucination. And then over time, uh, as a young adult, I eventually uh, woke up and had seen it hovering above me. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, I realized that she was also awake and I noticed that she was kind of in distress. So I asked her what was wrong. And she said to me, don't you see that green cloud? And that moment kind of changed things for me because it made me realize that what I was seeing wasn't just in my own head. And uh, I never saw it again after that. So part of me kind of feels as if it just wanted to be validated, whatever it was. And I had other experiences too. Like I grew up um, by the St. Louis ghost light, which is a famous Canadian uh, ghost. It's uh, a ghost story of, uh, there used to be train tracks there. And now um, people see this light over and over again. And uh, Canada Post has done a stamp that features this this story. That's how uh, big it is. And uh, even though I'd had that experience and even though the other stuff, I, I still kind of... Uh, see myself as a skeptical believer and I've had other experiences still. I, I know people have these experiences. I know that, uh, 
these things happen, but I don't know if I necessarily subscribe to the idea that it's spirits of the dead. So I kind of try to keep an open mind about that. And throughout my life, I, my, I was involved in private policing in Canada, which is, uh, um, like I would work for retail companies and arrest shoplifters and people that did, uh, drug deals or whatever on the property. Um, like the Hudson's Bay company in Vancouver was also a track, uh, attached to two SkyTrain stations and two malls. So it's a very large building. And so we'd have a lot of other crimes too, like uh, gang stuff and that. So I had that part of my life and I was going to get into full policing, um, like government paid policing. So I was I attended criminology schooling and er, uh, earlier I'd put in a application for the military after 9-11. And I ended up being accepted. So I uh, did a tour in Afghanistan. And so my life was kind of, I guess you could say, far away from the supernatural or paranormal um, or anything like that. But uh, I ended up getting cancer in Afghanistan. And it was Veterans Affairs has ruled it as related to the equipment I was exposed to. And so I ended up eventually being medically released and um, told I could go back to school for anything. And I've always enjoyed writing and I've always enjoyed research, like even with as a loss prevention um, manager and investigator, I researched a lot of fraud and stuff like that. So I started to focus on different uh, folklore and um, which had always interested me. And I wrote about uh, Celtic trees um, which is something I guess I was reaching out to my ancestry living in Canada. And uh, then I started writing about um, animals in Celtic folklore, like uh, uh, like the werewolf or the owl or whatever. And I found immediately on my my site that these were incredibly more popular. And then I wrote a post about the banshee, and this just went way more popular. So I was like, okay, that's interesting. And I ended up writing a post about uh, haunted locations on Vancouver Island, and it went kind of semi-viral for the region. I had wrote this post about Vancouver Island haunted locations, and that was more popular than anything else I'd written. And so I recognized right away that that was, that, that was something people were interested in, and nobody had written about about Vancouver Island as its own region as a book or even at that time as a post. So I saw an opportunity to write something that was uh, more academic than any of these, uh, you know, type of haunting uh, regional books are usually in North America. And also I wanted to include indigenous content like the First Nations content um, because there are so many stories that um, from indigenous communities and, uh, I guess you could say pre-settler, pre-contact and that have been carried over from oral tradition that I found really fascinating. And that's something that hadn't been, uh, shared very much either. So I was able to kind of, uh, find this, this, uh, middle ground and it resonated with a lot of people. So uh, when I published that book, it's, it did quite well. It was on the bestseller list in British Columbia for 42 weeks. And I do think that that's because 
at the same time, I'm kind of, I recognize people have these experiences, but I'm also somewhat skeptical. So that's kind of, I guess, uh, how I ended up writing the book and, and being interested in, in this sort of thing. Right. Okay. Uh, I remember in the, in the introductory chapter, you talk about you, you moved to Vancouver Island in 1995. That's right. Isn't it? Yeah. The first time I moved, uh, to Vancouver Island was in 1995. And then I left, uh, I went to Vancouver as a, as a manager, um, a loss prevention manager for the Bay, the Hudson's Bay company. Um, and, uh, and then, um, was in Alberta for military service and then deployed to Afghanistan. And so, and during that time too, I also lived in the States for a brief period of time under just under a year. So I, but I always kept coming back to Vancouver Island. And when I was, uh, had the opportunity to, um, go to school, this is where, where I was. So I ended up, um, going to the university here, Vancouver Island university. Oh, okay, cool. One thing I, I like about the introduction is you get a real sense of the of the island from the way you describe it, and all, all through the book, actually. Um, and you also have a in the, at the beginning of each chapter, which is an individual story. There's always a a map of the island, and you highlight where on the island that this legend or this this story kind of is located. Just um, could you just describe um. Vancouver Island itself, just to kind of um, help give an idea of the kind of place that it is, because it sounds like a, a, a beautiful wilderness. Is that is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite wild as a place. Like it's it's a it's a fascinating place. Um, it's an island uh, bigger than Sicily, and. Um, so a lot of people don't realize that, that there's this island that's, that's big right off the coast of, of British Columbia, which is the West uh, side of Canada. I'm sure most people know that, but, uh, yeah, our, our capital city is on the Southern tip, Victoria. And that was a place there was a fort originally because of the uh, division of North America with the States. And, and they wanted to uh, have a presence there, I guess you could say. And with the gold rush and everything, um, it, it became quite a populated place. And the further, I guess, you get north on the island, the less populated it is even to, to this day. And there's, um, on the west side of the island, it's, it's open Pacific Ocean and it's really rugged so this is part of the graveyard of the pacific which with it it's referred to that uh, because of the amount of ships that go down and there's still every year it seems that we lose a, a boat or two whether it's a fishing boat or something bigger and uh some of the trees uh like it's the climate's really warm uh, especially for canada it's probably like the warmest place and uh, some of the trees are like over a thousand years old because it's the old uh, cedar trees. They're not true cedars, actually. We call them cedars, but um, they're actually cy cypress trees. Not everybody here even uh, realizes that. And then um, there's a lot of, because it's mountainous and there's valleys and there's uh, caves and uh, there's 
incredible wildlife. Like there's um, a lot of the different species of, of whales, and then we've got uh, wolves and bears and um, elk and pretty much everything uh, you could think of. I mean, there's certain species that have never made it over here for some reason, like uh, there's no coyote, but uh, it's, it's a really wild and fascinating place. And that being said, like most of the population has, has settled on the inside of the island. So um, in, facing the Salish Sea or across from uh, the mainland, which we call British Columbia. So um, there's a, a lot of places with no cell signals, uh, very little access. Uh, you have to get past a gate to go on a logging road. And some of these places have uh, old ghost towns um, that pretty much have been reclaimed by the forest now. Um, they're generally logged, so the trees might not be as, as old in some of these places, which is unfortunate, but there's a lot of protected areas to uh, park areas with uh, um, the diversity of species in, in these places is just amazing um, because of the, uh, there's everything from the, the mushrooms, um, several species of mushrooms to like the large trees to all the shrubs and herbs and um, that a lot of the First Nations people call medicines too. So it's just a, an amazing place. And like, as much as a person explores it, like every town and city kind of even has its own vibe. It just keeps opening itself up over and over. Uh, Tofino on the west coast of the island is is a world uh, tourist destination. And you can go there any time of the year. And uh, there's people from all over the world visiting. And people come there mostly to surf or to whale watch. Um, and in winters, a lot of people like to storm watch as well. And it's a very romantic place. And um, Vic, the city of Victoria um, is considered one of the most romantic places in Canada uh, because it's, uh, you know, very peaceful, low crime, older buildings for us. I mean, for, for you, the, our buildings are probably brand new, but um, it's, yeah, it's a beautiful place. It's hard for me um, not to like just kind of gush about how much that I love <laughs> uh, Vancouver Island because the more that I get to know it, the more that it amazes me. And especially like when uh, you start to learn about the First Nations cultures as well, like they're just uh, so fascinating and beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been to Vancouver, so I haven't been to the island, but I know when I went there, I got the chance to go up into the the forest near the city, and there. It's the biggest, the biggest trees I've ever seen. It was, it was amazing. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah well, yeah. Um, what was, was there any particular reason that you, you moved there first? Um, or was it just, was it just something draw you there? Or was it an opportunity or? Well, I, I really just wanted to get out of my hometown, I guess. Like we, you know, you grew up somewhere, especially uh, we call it the prairies. It's farmland where I grew up and in, in northern Saskatchewan's really rough winter. So like generally five months of winter and um, below uh, minus 30 Celsius, a lot of it, like sometimes even minus 50 with the wind chills. Um, so it's just a completely different life um, compared to like what I'd always seen in like movies, like a lot of uh, 
even a lot of Hollywood movies people don't realize are filmed in Vancouver and uh, in British Columbia. <laughs> so it's kind of like that place, I guess, where people want to go maybe to LA in the States um, for us in Canada, it might be like Vancouver. And I didn't really, even growing up in Canada, I didn't really realize that Vancouver Island was separate from Vancouver because the name I thought maybe it was kind of like, you know, Long Island is to New York or something. But uh, right. I came out this way. And the reason I came over to the island is because I had some friends here, a couple that I'd gone to high school, high school with. And I came and I didn't realize that I'd be staying. I didn't realize that uh, the opportunities would open up the, the way that they did. And I guess after that, just things just worked out for me. Oh, great. Okay, so going back to the book, the the first story I'd like to talk about is uh, Kiha Beach. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, in that one, I remember, I remember that uh, it was, it was um, during that experience that you perhaps was that where the I the the seed of an idea for this book started to to ferment in a way. Sort of because that's. Um... I mean, I guess like that other experience I described, it it was kind of big too, because it's, so I was camping on the west coast of the island on this beautiful beach that it takes a couple hours to hike into. It's pretty rugged terrain and it's it's hard to explain. It's like got sea caves on one side of it. It's this long sand beach and sea arches on the other side of it and You've got the waves rolling in. It's a whale rubbing beach. Uh, I never saw any whales come up and, and do that when I was there. And that, that's when they come really shallow and uh, rub their, I guess, themselves against, against the sand to remove um, any barnacles or anything like that that's attached to them. So um, there's eagles there. There's um, uh, other wildlife around and these huge trees because it's part of a park. So it's very, feels very kind of uh, sacred. Uh, not a lot of people go there and camp. And uh, when I went, it was before summer, it was before the May long weekend. So it was, uh, there weren't very many people around at all. Like during the weekend, there might be like another tent in the distance or whatever, or uh, even closer. But during the week, it was like uh, people had left and I ended up staying there for a couple weeks so i had packed in food and then um i was kind of experimenting a little bit with foraging and uh people would sometimes uh they can't they'd hiked in because it is such an arduous hike would leave their own food with me they'd say hey we're leaving do you want this so it allowed me to stay a little bit longer each time um so it was i was having this kind of uh it was a time in my life just after um, I'd learned my grandfather was passing away and I was, I guess before that I was more of a, um, a free floating spirit. Um, so I just was trying to figure stuff out uh, as far as life, like what I want to do with my life and, and, uh, as far as career and stuff. And this one night I, uh, woke up and I felt that as if there was somebody outside of my lean to shelter. And when I looked outside, no one was there. Um, but there is, I noticed there's a light uh, on, cause I was camped close by the, 
the cliff. So there's, or the arches, which has a cliff there. Uh, so there's a light kind of hovering up there. And I watched it for a long time and I couldn't figure out how it could be there because it was so, so thick a forest. And like, how would somebody get up there at night and what would they be doing? So it didn't really feel like crazy supernatural or anything like that. It just, I mean, it was a long time ago and my memory isn't the best for it. Like even writing about it in my book, I had to look back at my journal for when I stayed there. But uh, what I did the next day when I, um, when it was light and safe to do so is I climbed up there, which was really difficult to do. And uh, because this forest area was kind of on a point, I kind of searched through the whole area looking for even a path. And it was really difficult, like to move, I would have to like, walk across like a fallen log. And then I found a bear trail at one point, but it was low. And then even that I was like, well, the light would have to be hovering off the ground because of all these Salal bushes, like these, this underbrush. So I still to this day, I don't really know what that light is, but, um, it's, there's in that whole area, there's uh, supernatural type stories, uh, first nation stories. And there used to be, um, villages in that area that I didn't know about at the time, um, because the, the first nations people here were pretty adv advanced on the coast. And what they would do is they, sometimes they would do uh, Viking like raids, especially the Haida from the Queen Charlotte islands, um, now called Haida Gwaii used to be called Queen Charlotte on older maps, but, uh, they would come down and raid the Nechilnath people or the coast sailors or the Kwakwakiwak and, uh, basically massacre them at times, take some of them as slaves and take their treasures uh, or whatnot. So um, it's really possible that at that point there was a, a village at one, at one period of history a long time ago. I don't really know, but it's a complete mystery to me what that is. And that's another one of those things where it's like, um, you know, I, it's something happened, but is it uh, spirits of the dead or is it something else? I don't, I don't really know, but it's not something that I can find a, a scientific answer for. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. So, so, um, when you noticed the presence, did that wake you up or, or were you awake and then you noticed the, the presence outside your tent? Well, I was sleeping in my lean to, and I woke up, um, you know, that feeling you get when somebody's close by. Hmm. And, uh, so I felt like as if somebody was close by and I remember feeling like, um, yeah, like almost surprised when I looked outside and there was no one there. And, uh, and that's when I noticed it. So it, yeah, it almost felt connected to what was happening down on the beach too. Right. One thing in, in that story that I did like was that you you describe you, I mean, you describe how difficult this place is to get to, and uh, you mentioned like gigantic gigantic fallen trees that. So, the territory itself is not. I get the impression it's not like steep. It's but it's but it's still difficult terrain. It's just that there's no easy path there. I suppose. Yeah, there's no easy path, and that and where I saw the light 
was even more difficult because that was out like away from any of the trail or the beach. So, like I said, to get up there, I had to climb a cliff. So, um, uh, trying to imagine how someone could be up there with a flashlight at night is pretty, um, like, it's just, it's not, not reasonable. You know what I mean? Like the, like the only thing I could think of would be like somebody had intentionally tried to mess with me, you know, to, to screw with me, which seems even more unrealistic than, you know, something unexplained. Right. So it was yeah, just, I think I, yeah. Yeah. Um, and also really, you mentioned, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. It's just re- really a strange experience. Yeah, definitely. I, I also, you mentioned that you, you got a lift at one point with a couple of guys, um, uh, Spencer and, and Barry. And right. had, a, um, had, a com- had a conversation with them at, at, uh, that was quite interesting. Yeah, um, that was when I was hitchhiking there because I hitchhiked and then got dropped off at the trailhead. Um, and yeah, um, uh, Barry and Spencer. Spencer turned out to be a chief, a hereditary chief. Um, didn't really reveal that at first. And uh, the conversation kind of went into... Uh, some pretty heavy spirituality, uh, spiritual stuff at the time. And uh, they they had told me when I was on the beach to make sure to respect it. And, and it kind of set the tone for my whole stay too. Oh, okay. So do you, do you think, do you think what you experienced with the light could be, could be connected to that? Like you were, you were a respectful visitor and, yeah. Uh, I never really could that be could that be something to do with it? Yeah, I never really thought about it, I guess, but I think that um like when you get, get especially when you get into the later stories of the book, The Haunting of Vancouver Island, and when you're um looking at um First Nation spirituality, respect is a huge part of dealing with the spirits that both the spirits of our ancestors, which would be human spirits and the spirits of other beings. Um, So respect is paramount. And I think that's the message that I get when I read folklore from other cultures too. And the one thing that I think um, we've lost, especially in the era of paranormal investigating and ghost adventures and, and all of that, that, um, that respect is, is really important. And I think that, um, like when you're respectful and you're dealing with spirits, it comes very close to, uh, to me anyways, it feels more like, uh, sacred instead of, you know, something that you're just, um, doing for fun or as a hobby. And so maybe because they set that tone in a sense, when I see the light, it has a deeper significance for somebody like me than if I was just like, oh, cool, um, that looks really neat, um, whatever that is up there. And I'm going to, you know, try to talk to it with the Ouija board and, you know, all all that sort of uh, nonsense. Well, to me, it's nonsense anyways. But um, 
yeah, I would say that they set the tone, but I've, um, I've had experiences and relationships with a lot of different first nations people, um, including, I mean, uh, there's a chapter in the book, um, where I interview chief James Swan, who's a hereditary chief of a house he's a guy I served in the military with and, uh, about the, uh, ghost stories and, um, kind of the, the way of dealing with animal spirits and such, um, in the book. And, uh, um, you know, I've, I've been a part of a sweat lodge community at one point. And so the kind of the first nations or indigenous spirituality, um, in North America, um, and that a whole approach really resonates with me as true. And I think when we look at a lot of our, uh, different cultures, like the folklore, a lot of cultures have these similar approaches where it's, you know, you treat, you treat nature with respect. And, uh, generally if you don't, something bad will happen. And, uh, yeah, I like, I like looking at it that way. Yeah, definitely. Um, another story from your book, which I think exemplifies that really well and and actually you, you start the book with, uh, is the spirit of the wolf. Um, that just tell us a little bit about, about that, that story. Sure. Um, so that's the story of Stakia. Uh, Stakia is a whole communum word. Um, I, I believe, well, it's definitely, uh, Coast Salish. And, uh, so there's this very tiny island called Discovery Island that's just off the shore of Victoria. So it's a very heavily populated area where you've got uh, our capital city and across the Salish Sea there, you've got Vancouver. Nearby, you have the um, San Juan Islands, which is ac actually um, American. And on the other side of the, the strait is um, the Olympia Peninsula, which is uh, in Washington state. And so these whole, this whole area is heavily, heavily populated, but for some reason, a lone wolf showed up on this tiny Island. It's only, um, I think it's like, uh, less than a kilometer long and about half a kilometer wide. And it's forested for the most part. Um, it's half park and half first nations reservation. And there is a lighthouse on it, but other than that, it's, uh, it's pretty inaccessible people that go there to visit the park and camp. There's no fires allowed, but if they are to camp, which I think camping is, is not allowed now, but, uh, the only access is pretty much by kayak or, um, you know, you have to figure a way to anchor your boat because there's no dock or anything there. So this wolf, this lone wolf showed up there in 2012 and, um, the first nations reservation, um, land there is, is, uh, owned by the Songhees. And the Songhees chief, Robert Sam, had a stroke of, around the time that the wolf showed up and then passed away. And so they believe that the wolf is connected to his passing. Um, the wolf, they, they tried to, uh, the park side tried to, park people tried to trap it with food-laden traps. And it wouldn't, it was too wary to go into the traps. Uh, it 
would swim to other islands, sometimes close islands, like smaller islands, and subsist on um, like food in the intertidal zone, like uh, clams and such, and prey on small seals, like young seals and seabirds, like ducks and stuff. And it's still there to this day. So seven years later, uh, despite this being a small island, um, wolves are quite well known to have large territories and it can uh, often be heard howling. It's uh, obviously never found a mate. It's never left. It's, it's just this huge mystery. And the Songhees do believe that um, their chief has, uh, has inhabited this wolf and is living there as a protector to them. Yeah, it's a, it's a really great story. I, I think, like you say, there's a real mystery there, isn't there, in terms of how the wolf got there and also also the timing. I mean, uh, is, this, is there a precedent for something like this? There is actually... Yeah, um, there's a, a lot of stories um, of the First Nations people in um, the Pacific Northwest where somebody has passed and said that they'll return as an animal and an animal has shown up and it's kind of uncanny. And the most famous actually is uh, another Vancouver Island story of a whale called Luna. And Luna, uh, because... Uh, the First Nations name is Tsuxik, but I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But uh, so there's most people have heard in the news about the southern resident killer whale population because it's really endangered right now. And um, a lot of people um, all over the world are, are trying to help uh, protect protect them. But they're in the Salish Sea, so they swim around the area of Vancouver, Victoria, Seattle and the States, that whole region. And so this one young male disappeared and was presumed dead and was um, later found, I can't remember if it was like six months later, a year later or, or what, um, on the outside of the island, a place that uh, these whales never really go, in uh, Nootka Sound. And... This is where um, another chief had was pa passing away and had said that he was going to return as a whale. And this whale uh, came around and was approaching people and uh, people were having all sorts of experiences with them. And it, again, the, uh, there was, I guess, uh, fisheries wanted to relocate, relocate him. Uh, because they were able to identify uh, the whale it was. And then the First Nations didn't want it happen. So there's kind of a standoff there. But this is a really, really famous case. There's a documentary about it called The Whale. And um, yeah, so I would say as a precedent, that's a really huge precedent. But there are stories, older oral stories as well, of things like this happening um, all over the island where it just kind of defies what you think should be going on logically. Yeah, I mean, one thing I I found myself thinking was to First Nations people, it, it seems like they have a, well, clearly they have a far more intimate and respectful relationship with nature than, than a, a Western society in general. So things like this, like the, that, that chief 
passing away and then this wolf appearing to to them is that is that unusual or or, or I, I guess if they intend to come back as something is it is it just part of their part of their culture and I'm trying to we we would call that we would call that the supernatural but to a First Nations person is that mm-hmm. just part of their is that just part of their culture? Yeah, I would say it is. Uh, the I mean, this is. I think the important thing to to realize is, um, like the spiritual beliefs would be called uh, traditional beliefs here, because you you have um, the First Nations people. Uh, some people, I guess, would be more um, would have rejected those types of beliefs. And some people would have adapted to Christianity, maybe. Um, some people would see the beliefs as metaphoric, maybe similar to how some people see uh, the whale and Jonah in the Bible, um, where other people would see a lot of the stories as literal. So there are kind of different ways that people look at at the stories. The uh, But uh, at its core, um, it's the, the lessons are very, very clear. Um, that we are connected to nature and nature is us. And so the Nacholnoth, there's three main First Nations groups on Vancouver Island. It's the Coast Salish, the Kwakwakiwak, and the Nacholnoth. And the Nacholnoth have a saying, and I'm not going to try to say it because I'm going to mispronounce it in their language, but um, it's it says everything is one. So that's from the wind to the raindrop to the wolf to the to the fish everything we're all connected and we're supposed to um, act accordingly so if you're taking um, a tree to be used as a mast on your boat there's prayers there's ceremonies you thank that tree when you um, fish and you take a salmon you take those bones when you're done and you put them into the river uh, so they go back out to the ocean so that that salmon can reincarnate. And so um, traditionally, we're talking about a really, really high level of respect for nature. And so um, I would say that there's that a lot of people still um, really feel that way. And even people that are, I guess, more uh, science based, um, highly educated, would still um, agree that that's a way that uh, they look at the world, um, maybe just uh, not worded the same, um, but there's still that sense that it's that important. And uh, whether you call it spiritual or whether you just call it common sense, uh, because of the environment, um, it's very um, high up there that that everything around us is sacred and that you don't take advantage of anything so these are the the uh, teachings that have been shared with me but i think it's important that i a note at this time that i'm i'm a very small percent first nations and it's not from here so um i'm i'm just um sharing what i've been told i'm allowed to share um and to the best of my understanding but uh, i'm not an expert by any means no, I mean, I, I, like I say, I thought it was a, it was an excellent first uh, chapter of of the book. I, I thought it was, it was, it was told very well. Oh, thank you. Uh, okay, very much. so I, I wanted, 
go ahead straight. sorry <laughs> I, I wanted to start with uh the book with that story because it is a far uh, southern story as far as the island goes because the the haunting of vancouver island starts at the south of the islands and then works its way up to the north and because victoria the southern tip is so heavily populated i saw that as an opportunity to start uh more um, in the forest and more kind of a story that in a way represents pre-colonization pre-settling um and st stuff so yeah i think that um that's one of my favorite stories uh in the book as well so oh cool so um Let's move on to another story there. One that really caught my eye was The Curse of Brother 12. Yeah, um, so it's it's this is another story that's actually quite, um, I shouldn't say another story that's quite well known. Uh, it's one of the stories that's quite well known um, because of, uh, it's a, Brother 12 was, uh, I don't know how to describe it other than he was a religious leader involved in spiritualism um, that created kind of this cult. And it was in the late 1920s, early 1930s. And it was just outside of Nanaimo, which is um, about a third of the way, not quite a third of the way up the island. But it's still a populated area. But at the time, I guess you'd call it semi-rural um, outside of the city where he'd set up these these houses and uh, they ended up owning a couple of smaller islands excuse me uh, smaller islands as well and uh, they uh, it was called the aquarium foundation and he was uh, believed to um, access high spirits um, channel different spirits and uh, he claimed to to be able to remotely spy on people and enter people's dreams and to be able to curse people and, and such. And there are a lot of people that really believe that that's literal. And uh, a lo lot of other people think that he was uh, involved in a lot of sleight of hand and he was a master con man. He did um, con people out of vast fortunes of money and then there was eventually the Aquarian Foundation turned on him in the courts. And it's a quite a bit of a back and forth story of these legal battles. And um, but he ended up taking off and the money was never really found. And so there's to this day, there's people that search for the money. It's believed he died in Switzerland uh, a few years later in 1934, although there are people that say that they heard him or saw him after that in California as well. It's uh, there's whole books written about him and there's um, yeah, it's, he's an interesting figure. I focused on in the book on the, this idea that they were having these um, astral battles and that they were involved in this magic, this black magic and stuff, because it's uh, to me, that was the fascinating the most fascinating part about that story. Yeah, was there was there anything in particular that brought him to to Vancouver Island? Um, I, I can't remember to be to be honest. Uh, there's quite a lot of uh, research. He was um, a member. He he had traveled the world as a 
as a a low person on a ship. I can't remember his exact title, but he wasn't. He claimed to people later that he was a captain, but he wasn't. He was like, a, I don't think he was a stoker or anything like that, but he was, yeah, he wasn't very high rank. So he had been to a lot of different ports in the world. And apparently when he visited these ports, he would often seek out the spiritual places like uh, the Egyptian pyramids or, um, you know, wherever the uh, places in, in China and, and, you know, down in South America and such. But uh, as far as Vancouver Island, I think, you know, he, he would find here, the appeal would be the, the access to more affordable land probably and the ability to be somewhat removed from um, the cities but still have access to you know everything that they might need and then um, something that you know I think you know many people might agree with me is that there's kind of like almost a palpable supernatural feel to Vancouver Island and especially you know any place near the ocean like there's there's always that vibe that there's maybe more going on than than meets the eye so i would think that you know a combination of you know um solitude and easy access to things um the beautiful nature the warm climate climate and probably affordable land but that's just me i guess just guessing I don't really know for sure. Okay, no, it's just it, his um, his story is it it rings true of a lot of cult leaders, I think, in that they they eventually get the 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 followers get a bit sick of the of the leader not obeying the rules that he sets down for them. Yeah, and also exactly. they, I guess they get they get they find out that they've been <laughs> they've been conned as well. And but there are there are a couple of trials, weren't there? I think the first one the first one failed because. The, the uh, a crucial witness was was scared off. I think. Well, he disappeared, and there's people that think oh. that he was he was murdered. Um, right. And I think um, Brother Twelve had alluded that he was able to do this uh, remotely, and so that kind of increased the the fear of him. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's he, he was he you know he did start nice, and there was a a genuine uh, shift when he tried to, because he was he was channeling different spirits and communicating with different spirits, um, you know. So so he says, but when he tried to communicate or channel the spirit called the Black Addict, that's when things he changed and people said that they noticed a personality shift and like his face would often look very angry. But there was, it's hard to say like what was going on before that, because a lot came out after about, you know, like you said, typical of cult leaders that he's like kind of sleeping with everybody's wives and everybody's daughters and all of that. And they're supposed to be, you know, not really do anything and uh, work extra hard, um, keeping the, keeping the land maintained and stuff. So it's pretty sad to read what happened to some of the people. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, it's good that he got chased off, I guess. But uh, um, yeah, like cult cult leaders everywhere uh, had some level of charisma, was able to speak very eloquently, and um, hmm. was in communication with other spiritual 
uh, spiritualists because it was part of the spiritualist movement um, throughout North America. And, and uh, yeah, so was, has had a lot of his things actually published too. So yeah, fascinating, fascinating person in a sense, but very uh, dark. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying about um, the first nations uh, tradition that, that you are respectful to spirits. Do you think, do you think there's any, any, any likelihood that what he was doing could have potentially, there could have been some sort of, I don't know, some sort of entity that he didn't respect in it. And it's something like that could have happened with the black adept. I mean, well, the black adept is, de- um, is a kind of, I guess you would say a white tradition or a European tradition spirit mm. that he was channeling. Uh, but the first day, there are a couple first nations connections. Um, the one of them, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but there's an older book where there is this, um, investigator, this kind of ghost investigator that had looked at that land and said that there is a, a first nations, uh, dump site of slave bodies. Um, so I don't know if that's sensational, uh, or true. Um, that that land would have that kind of darkness to it. Uh, another thing is that during the the court cases, um, there was the people that testified against him in the last case um, had gotten a hold of a First Nations um, relic and were holding it in their hand while they testified against him because they believed that it was protecting them against him. So I, th- I think that that's interesting. But uh, that's the only connections I'm aware of. Yeah, well, I remember that actually from from that that that, that was interesting. The idea that, that the idea of using that to kind of protect them from from him was it's uh, it's quite dramatic. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, so how about we move on to the Phantom Ship Valencia? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the, the Valencia is a, they call that the Titanic of British Columbia or the Titanic of the West coast. And in 1906, there was, um, a, a ship that was, uh, supposed to go towards Seattle. It missed with the stormy weather. It missed the turn where it was supposed to turn into the one to Fuca Strait, And it ended up kind of plowing into the side of. Vancouver Island by a cliff face, um, actually quite near Kia Beach, a place called Pachina Point. And uh, there was 173 registered people on board, but uh, only 37 survived. And the only 25 or 25 of those 37 survivors were crew members. And the reason I say 173 registered is uh, there was the women were registered, but the children weren't. So there was a lot of problems because it, the ship ended up, it was colder waters. It was like in January, but it ended up hung up on these rocks uh, by the cliffs and slowly breaking apart. And they made several uh, miscalculations. And uh, as far as like when they tried to launch the first six lifeboats, 
Um, they nobody had put plugs in them yet. Some of them were partially um, filled, like didn't weren't even filled with people. And some of them pitched to the sides, and um, it ended up most of the people ended up dying that tried to get into the boats. And then because uh, there's like the swirling water in this kind of in front of these cliffs, and so. They hoped for rescue. At one point, they launched a, a, a ship to go try to tie a line to the to the cliff, um, so that they could uh, try to, I guess, hoist people off of off of the ship. And the the crew had to row for several hours because they couldn't find a place to land that was safe. And then uh, when they did they had to hike, they found a trail and they had to hike to the nearest lighthouse. So, uh, like I said, with the way that the terrain is here, uh, it's really, really hard to get through the forest. And so there's a huge problem as far as, um, anybody even knowing that the ship had gotten here until, um, the next day, um, people started hearing about it and then help started arriving. And, uh, by the time a rescue party arrived at the top of the cliff there, they were just in time to see, uh, the boat finally going, the last remnants of it going under and being smashed apart and to see women and children. And it was apparently pretty traumatic. So there was, uh, um, a commission th that looked into it both in the United States and Canada and investigated how this happened and, um, what like uh, why why these uh why the rescue ships weren't able to come closer when they finally did arrive and um there's a lot of blame on the captain there's a lot of blame on the crew especially because women and children were left behind i mean that's never a good thing to do especially at that uh time in history where you know men are supposed to be more noble and and you know, sit, go down with the ship and get the women and children off. But, um, so the story was pretty, pretty tragic. And the, the earliest ghost story around it that I'm aware of is 1910 when the Seattle times reported that, uh, ships in the area were seeing, uh, the ghost ship Valencia. So that, uh, is, is kind of, um, the start of the ghost story around it. There was uh, other stories that came out later that turned out were kind of made up, but uh, there's still a lot of people that think that there's a ghost ship um, on on the west coast of the island uh, near Kia Beach that I talked about. And uh, although I haven't read or heard any firsthand accounts for anything very recent it might be more one of those ghost stories where it's everybody says that there's a ghost there but nobody's actually seen it although there are um, some pretty strange mysteries um, because in 1933 um, one of the missing rowboats was found floating in the water and uh, it's just bizarre if you think about it because uh, rainwater would fill it up and sink it. So it's like, where did this boat boat come from? Like, um, could it have been in a sea cave? Was it, did, had somebody, you know, 
pulled it up beyond the, the high tide line and was using it as a personal vessel of some, hmm. uh, for some reason, but it's like so unlikely because these, these were huge, massive rowboats. You'd need like presumably at least four people to row these boats that could hold like 30, 40 people. So what would somebody use that for as far as a personal craft, if they'd salvaged it or found it, um, you know, you couldn't really use it for fishing and it wouldn't really be good for anything. So it's pretty strange, but, um, the person who found the rowboat took off the plate identifying it. And that plate ended up in a, a maritime museum here because the, I can't remember if it was his son or grandson ended up being the curator of the museum. So yeah, it's, it's a pretty strange story, but it's, it's one of the, it's like brother, the story of brother 12 and that it's uh, people that are interested in these types of things all over the world know about the story about the ghost ship Valencia. Yeah. Another thing that I remember from the story was that didn't somebody report that they'd seen, they'd seen a lifeboat with skeletons in it, in, in a sea cave. Yeah. So when the there was reports shortly after so when these six boats went over um some of them pitched some of them sunk um one of them with a few survivors made it to the shore and they had to wait there and then climb a cliff and try to go get help um but there was um one boat that was unaccounted for and so there were scavengers that were um, searching the area later and they came across they claimed that they found in deep inside the sea cave they found um uh this rowboat with a bunch of skeletons in it and they reported it uh, one of them the men reported it uh, a first nations man and um when people went to go back other people the first people that went said that they I think they said that they could see something back there and they could smell, um, you know, the, um, smell something terrible. Um, I kind of alluded to that. It sounded like maybe it smelled like decomposing, um, bodies, but, uh, um, when like further attempts, I guess, because the waters were getting rougher and rougher to recover the boat were never made. And, the boat definitely was never recovered. So yeah, it is possible that that is where that lone boat came from that lone rowboat, but it's kind of hard to, to imagine that it would finally come free after all those years. And that for some reason that the skeletons would no longer be inside of it, but uh, you never know. It's pretty, it's pretty strange that that boat would, would be out there. So, hmm. yeah. Was there, was there any outcome of, with what, out of the investigation into the, into what happened? Was there any prosecutions or did anything happen to the captain or the, or the company that, that ran the, that owned the ship? Well, the, uh, captain uh, went down with the ship, Okay, but, uh, there's, um, I'm trying to remember now because it's been a while since I looked at my research for that, but uh, I can't remember if what happened to the actual company. Um, there was definitely a lot of pressure and stuff 
what did transpire, um, one of the biggest things is that there's now a series of lighthouses mm -hmm. and the West Coast Trail, which is uh, a lot of people come from all over. Usually have to book, I think, a year in advance even uh, to hike the West Coast Trail, which is a beautiful hiking trail that goes uh, basically from it starts right beside Kia Beach, uh, near Kia Beach and goes all the way down um, to Port Renfrew, which is near near to Victoria. But uh, that West Coast Trail was created as a result because they wanted um, to be able to access um, like all these different areas if they needed to, if they needed to get help to people. And then there was after, uh, it was, you know, the early 1900s, there was technology changes as well. So they started to create um, kind of a small, um, I, wouldn't, I don't know, fleet might be, might make it sound bigger than it is, but uh, they had like these rapid response boats uh, that were motorized mm -hmm. that were able to do rescue. So it's kind of like early search, search and rescue kind of as a result. So I think that the, it changed a lot safety wise. There was also uh, a changes as far as like um, the, the opening of the one of Fuca Strait and the lighthouses and stuff too, so that they're, it would be more uh, noticeable and more accessible, I guess, to ships that were coming. And I think, you know, something, a story like this would, would make a lot of captains after um, be more careful too, because, you know, you always, you always, you know, know these stories of tragic deaths, although they're, like I said, it's the graveyard of the Pacific. There's a, a lot of ships that have gone down. Um, I think this one is, more tragic because of the, the number of people who were lost and also mm. um, the women and children and, and all of that. But uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's mostly the response has mostly been safety based. Yeah, it, it sounds like it was just, it's just something that they weren't prepared for and how to deal with getting people safely off the ship it just it just seemed like one bad choice after the other really in terms of what to do <laughs> yeah and the captain was inexperienced it wasn't the usual captain mm. and it wasn't the usual ship that did that that kind of ferry run um from i think it was coming from S san francisco supposed to go to san francisco to seattle if i'm not mistaken so it was just like you know all these things and then when the fog it was an offshore fog so um, the lighthouse wasn't making the horn sounds because it was, they weren't experienced. This came out in the commission report, like the investigation, they weren't even experiencing a fog. So they didn't know that um, offshore there was this huge fog and the ship couldn't see. And so the, the captain was kind of, to put it bluntly, he was kind of a, an idiot because he started making um, a, choices based on intuition instead of um you know when you're navigating and especially in dangerous waters you don't do that you you make sure you have the hard facts and he was doing that so by missing the opening um and he just kept going straight and then ended up plowing into into this rock so it's pretty pretty bad yeah definitely 
Okay, so I think we've got time for one more story from your book. How about we have um, uh, The Wild People of the Woods? I, I really like this one. Sure. Um, so I guess that would be, that story is, uh, as a chapter, it's more a bunch of shorter stories, or I mm -hmm. guess you could say it's a cluster of stories. And that would be stories that I guess um, the the settler or European background content would call Sasquatch stories. And the First Nations people would have words like Zonaqua. And I put them together as a way to compare and contrast too, because a lot of times the, the um, I guess the television shows and the books and the people involved in cryptozoology have promoted this idea that um, people all over believe in the Sasquatch when that's not really the case of uh, the, the stories of the wild people, of the woods of are quite different than Sasquatch. And, um, but that being said, there's no reason why people who see something that um, could be described as Sasquatch aren't actually seeing Zunaqua. So she's um, like a, kind of like a boogeyman type figure where parents will tell their kids not to go out at night or not to do anything naughty. Otherwise she'll come and abduct them. And she puts children in her basket and then she takes them and later eats them. So there are a couple of stories very similar to Hansel and Gretel, I guess, where children have outsmarted her and escaped. And, uh, but at the same time, simultaneously, she's like a benevolent figure where, uh, people treat her with respect and she will, um, I guess you could say, um, give them wealth of some sort or bless them. So yeah, it's all over the Pacific Northwest, this story. It's not just on Vancouver Island, but she's always female and she's, she's, uh, yeah, not really like the Sasquatch that uh, cryptozoologists uh, tell you about. There's a male version, sometimes said to be your husband, but he's quite small. He's, his name is Bookless, and he is sometimes called King of the Ghosts. And his he's monkey-like as well. He has an entourage of spirits that are with him. A lot of them are, are the dead sailors or dead fishermen. And he, they say, if you are wandering through a forest or hiking and you come across food that's left out, not to eat it because that is bookless, um, trying to get, turn you into a ghost. So if you eat that food, you'll be, um, become part of his entourage of ghosts. So for whatever reason, there's that, that story that he is, is the husband of Zunaqua, although some people say that that's not really um, the story at all. So there's kind of like a division whether or not he is. There's the word Sasquatch does come from Vancouver Island. And uh, it is a Coast Salish uh, kind of version of a word here. And it's also tied to these stories too. So um, yeah, it's not really the same Sasquatch story or Bigfoot story that uh, you know, I think with a lot of times the cryptozoologists try to make things fit that don't to try to 
I paint this different picture and they include a lot of the first nations stories that, uh, they say are proof that first nations believed, um, that there's this undiscovered man ape when that's not really the case at all. These are spirit creatures. And even, um, I, I've interviewed a woman that I know, um, that's from Bella Bella and that's on actually on the mainland, but like up the coast a bit. And she's, um, Heltzik. And she told me about her own, she saw, uh, what she described as like a Sasquatch type encounter, but she says like, they believe that they're shapeshifters and they're have the ability to be invisible and stuff. So it's not really, it's not the, this ape, ape man that a lot of, you know, a lot of us are led to believe that like the first nations beliefs are quite different. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned the not eating food that you find, because that, that reminds me of, of kind of, of fairy lore in, in, in Celtic countries. And the, if you eat that, if you eat, like, if you eat their food, then you, you can get stuck in, in their world. And, and, uh, the Sanaqua sounds a bit like, like, uh, like Baba Yaga in, in Europe. It's, mm -hmm. it's interesting how these, these sorts of entities can appear in, in locations very far apart. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, like I said, I was um, blogging and writing about Celtic folklore for quite a while. So I see the parallels as well, like you. And, you know, we, I think a lot of times we forget that, um, that fairy, the word fairy is kind of bastardized over time too. And it really just meant mm. uh, spirits. And like uh, Catherine Briggs says that, uh, you know, that, they were basically diminished gods, which would be like any type of nature spirit too, or ghosts. And I think eventually over time, we get to this place where, you know, you, you had the Victorian fairies with the butterfly wings and stuff, and then the mm. Disney type influence. So we have this, this idea of that a fairy is something completely different than, than these terrifying kind of like unexplicable spirits that exist in our wild places. And I think when we remember that, then, you know, there, there are very similar, um, types of stories all over the world, you know, there, um, you know, these spirits were something to be feared for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, going back to the chapter where you talk about Stakir, I, I remember in that you were, you mentioned a, a legend of a, a man whose daughter is stolen by like wolf people and he goes to. I think he has to go through like a, a, like a lake of the dead to, to find her again. And, and to right. him, to him, this takes four days, but then he comes back to where, to the, to, to the human world and, and, and four years have passed. And I, and again, that's another missing time is another, it's another thing that can happen in, in, in fairy lore and, and, in and in the, in the myths and legends of, of, of other peoples, it's, it, it's, then that's that's something that's really fascinating to me the 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 similarities in these things yeah absolutely i think um like so that that story was uh translated from german franz boas and it was put down in 1895 and it was like oral traditions and stuff so as i know that probably sounds like to people 
you know, across the Atlantic, that probably sounds like pretty recent mm-hmm. um, times, but on the West coast of um, British Columbia, that's still when, you know, there's oral tradition, um, definitely separation. Um, there's a lot of, um, yeah, like people were really exposed to fairy tales, the first nations people. So like to have something so similar um, of a belief is pretty wild. And I think you see that, like you said, like kind of all over the world, especially when you look at the idea of shamanism and when you start looking at like, holy smokes, these cultures are kind of like from Siberia or from Chile or from Australia or from British Columbia. Like they're talking about like almost the exact same things. And, you know, why is that? Like, is it something psychological or does, is it because it's, because there's an, another dimension or another realm and these people have remembered how to access it or have remembered how to respect it. And that's something I try to, you know, kind of, kind of think about too, you know, when I, you know, if I'm, you know, even something as simple as like being grateful for food, right? Like to recognize yeah. that, you know, it's, it's a respectful relationship and to be, you know, that your food came from somewhere and, to treat it with respect because you know there there's probably a lot more to this than we realize right if if we if we think something like a ghost is real then we have to take it to the next step and recognize that there's a whole spiritual dimension and that's where you know we have to you know kind of be respectful and grateful for everything yeah definitely i mean i i think a, a big part of it is is like you say is showing respect and i i think from from what i've read is that um uh, here in in europe there was a there's a point where th- there was a time when when communities did have an understanding of these of these entities and this and this world around them and 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 learning how to deal with that and respect it help them lead lead their lives basically and then into the into the victorian era and the 20th century we move into more of a, a materialist sort of society where where something either exists or or it doesn't and and i think in, in europe especially there's some sort of mechanism for for understanding the supernatural was lost and that and that's now why why i think there are it's harder to 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 re-engage with it and you you have to do it on a on a on a personal level and i don't i don't think the answer is probably going to be in, in trying to study it scientifically that might help but i think but you have to sort of do it on a on a personal level and 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 take it from there yeah i think you're i think you're right i um i think you're really seeing like a like in canada right now a clash of ideologies um, but there's also kind of like, uh, um, I think there's kind of like, a starting to be a marriage of, of science and spirituality and that it all comes to a head. You're talking about industrialization. It all comes to a head mm-hmm. for us right now with what's been going on with the oil industry and pipelines and the environment and, uh, seeing collapse of, um, you know, different species in, in the ocean here, um, you know, right in our, our front yard. So I think, you know, 
a lot of people are seeing the need to be more respectful with nature, um, even just for survival purposes, even if it's not necessarily, you know, uh, a spiritual way that they're looking at it. And other people are still kind of seeing it as, uh, you know, nature is something for us to take as much as we can for as long as we can. So mm. it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to me when I'm starting to see like kind of, a this, uh, a lot of spiritual ideas and science kind of starting to marry in a sense. Yeah. It can only be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, Chen, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I thought it was excellent. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hey, anytime, Rick, I, I really appreciate you having me and, and thank you for reading the book. It, it always means a lot to me when people, um, outside of British Columbia, outside of North America, especially have read the book and yeah, it's, uh, it was, it took a long time to research and a long time to write. So yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did indeed. So if people um, want to find out more about you and where to get the book, where's the best place to find you? Okay. Um, well, the book is, uh, we've mentioned it a couple of times. It's the haunting of Vancouver Island and it is carried, um, any bookstore, um, in Canada, can can order it um any amazon can order it um, i know that the bigger bookstores um pretty much anywhere um, in the western countries have access to it as well uh, although they probably won't have it on the shelf my um site is livinglibraryblog.com um, or you can just find me by going on twitter and that's at Shannon with one N in the middle, Sin, S-I-N-N. And uh, that's probably the easiest way to find me. But if you're just to Google Vancouver Island Haunted, you would find find me as well because it's uh, uh, I've become, I guess, the the regional expert on the su- subject. So, yeah. <laughs> Rightly so. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll make sure to put um, links to your website and the and the book on in the show notes. Thanks again, Shannon. It's been a great chat. There are a lot of other stories that I'd have loved to have featured in this episode. The skull-faced bishop, Kanaka Pete, axe murderer, and the headless woman of Mount Sicker, to name just a few. Reading the book, I was struck by the similarity of some of these Canadian tales with examples from the UK and Europe. That makes sense, really as the island was settled by Europeans in the 19th century and those people would have brought their beliefs and storytelling traditions with them. That said, some of the concepts in the older stories are so archetypal, featuring ideas and entities familiar to a variety of cultures, that in some cases, I think it goes beyond something as simple as that. As Shannon mentioned, there is a powerful tradition amongst First Nations people of treating the natural and supernatural worlds with equal respect. If you don't, well, don't say you weren't warned. This message is seen in folklore across the globe. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, I heartily recommend getting hold of Shannon's book and also leaving a review or rating wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much for listening.